Um, right, it's a great pleasure to welcome Len Smith from Oberlin. He actually hasn't come all the way from the US to be with us. Failure on your part, Len, I have to say. Uh, because he's currently at the Ecole des Etudes in Paris, um, where I think we can probably end you relatively sorry for you. Um, he has worked primarily on France in the First World War. Um, his first book, Between Mutiny and Obedience, I think is on certainly on the First World War reading list here, um, as is uh, the book he wrote collaboratively, collaboratively with Annette Becker and Stefan Marizzo on France and the First World War. Um, and more, most recently, uh, his book, um, Embattled Self, uh, French Soldiers' Testimony of the Great War. He's now moving on, massive shift chronologically to 1919 um, on the Wilsonian moment, um, and uh, his title today is Ending Wars in a Wilsonian World, Sovereignty at the Paris Peace Conference. Thank you all very much for coming. It's a great, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, in setting up this talk, I thought about how this material would fit into a research seminar on the changing character of war, and I was reminded of a, a shortish article I'd written for a French reference work a few years back on, on uh, pacifism. And I argued that by 1917 or so, pretty much everyone was a pacifist in the sense that everyone wanted not just to end this war, but to make this the last of all wars. In the French expression, Dale de Dale, dernier de dernier de guerre. The question was, how do you get there and how do you transform the world in the meantime so that you end not only the present war but future wars as well? What I'm going to talk about today is a particular version of this certainly millenarian uh, um, concept of, of how it was that, that a certain group of people tried to make this the last of the last of all wars. <clears throat> and to try and understand it on its own terms. I want to begin by talking about an image, a cartoon published in a Japanese satirical magazine, Tokyo Paku, on the 1st of September, 1920. Its subject appears to be the American presidential election of 1920 uh, to determine the successor to Woodrow Wilson. You see a sort of brooding, frustrated, bedridden Wilson in the background. The contenders are struggling with a crown labeled the American presidency. The other caption, this caption, is the more significant. I should also report that I have had five PhDs in Japanese look at this and counting, among them my wife, and the translation is still a bit up for grabs. I've received remarkably different versions of the translation. The Japanese political cartoons of the era were notoriously ambiguous and elliptical, to say nothing of black print against a gray background and some arcane kanji uh, along the way. The prevailing translation at the moment is something like the following. The cripples and the small-minded, the current crop of candidates really represents the bottom of the barrel of humanity. I'd like to use this image to begin talking about my subject, which is sovereignty at the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, and to think about what sovereignty means beyond the very standard uh, definition of Max Weber, a member of the German delegation at the Paris Peace Conference, 
who, of course, defines sovereignty as a monopoly of over the legitimate use of violence over a discrete geographic space. That's not an exact translation, but that's more or less what he, what he said. Well, why should Tokyo Puck expect its readers to care about the results of an American presidential election? I'm not really sure that they did, at least not for its own sake. 1919 was not 1945. The United States was only one of several great powers. Uh, nevertheless, what for good or for ill Woodrow Wilson had uh, uh, said and had accomplished had implications far beyond American shores. Tokyo Puck flourished at a time known as Taisho democracy in Japan. Yoshihito, the Taisho emperor, had been enfeebled by a variety of inherited conditions so, such that he reigned but never really ruled. This, in effect, created something of a power vacuum at the center of the Meiji regime, which in fundamental ways was where power began and when, where power ended. Because of this vacuum, the Taisho years were, in some ways, a time of relative democratization when some progressive forces in Japan believed that Japan could and ultimately would evolve into a Western-style parliamentary democracy. I don't know that a great leap of imagination is necessary to read a parallel between the enfeebled Wilson and the enfeebled Taisho. The decline and the fall of the great American uh, uh, did not bode well for those who wished to deepen democracy in Japan in the absence of a strong monarch. Tokyo Puck, I should also say, was all over the place on Wilson during the war. Sometimes he was the great hero. Sometimes he was the great imperialist. Uh, he had many different incarnations in the publication over the course of the war. Um, all this said, the resolution of where sovereignty would lay in Japan, what its characteristics would be in, in, in Japan, would, would have great implications beyond Japan. In 1919, Japan was already the most important military power in East Asia, with colonies in Taiwan, Korea, and of course expanding colonial interests in China. The very modest participation of Japan in the Great War had earned a place at the table of the great powers at the peace conference itself. In other words, what sort of regime evolved in Japan would play a role in shaping sovereignty among nations, not just in East Asia, but in the international system writ large. This, of course, would become all too clear by the 1930s. Under the reign of Yoshihito's son, the Showa Emperor, more commonly known in the, in the West as Hirohito. Now, reading this image as about being a lot more than an Ameri uh, being about more than a lot a lot more than an American presidential election, I think, is consistent with the people who published it at the time. Wilson lurks in the background. He's neither controlling things nor is he absent. Likewise, this bundle of ideas known as Wilsonianism. Uh, 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 was there. It was not controlling things, but it was not absent either. And it had within it very radical notions of what sovereignty meant, not just among nations, but within them. The, so the, the successors are clearly lesser men, one of them almost rodent-looking like. Uh, uh, I haven't quite figured out what, what his story is yet. Um, 
Uh, but um, they're, but they're clearly lesser men. They're struggling over the crown. In the West, commonly a symbol of sovereignty, notably a monarchy. One hopes the irony is intentional because in a democracy, of course, the people are, are, are the sovereign. Um, and if Wilsonianism as a global phenomenon was about anything, it was about making the people sovereign across the globe. If the world could only figure out who they were, if the world could only figure out who the people were. Read most broadly, I think that the image argues that if the world could not live with Wilson, neither was it sure it could live without him. My project is not about Wilson, but I fear the project cannot live without him uh, uh, either. Uh, certainly, no one raised the issues of sovereignty at the Paris Peace Conference in more pointed ways. And I firmly believe that the history of Wilsonianism is too important to leave to Wilsonians or perhaps even to Americanists. And the thing I've had so much fun with so far is as someone who has never had formal training in American history since high school, it's very interesting and really quite fun for me to encounter this nowadays as someone of a very different professional uh, formation. And indeed, I find it striking, really kind of stunning, the lack of distance, the lack of critical distance, uh, 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 even today, 90 years later, when in, in historiographical writing and even thinking about Wilson. And, and it's so easy to slip into a discussion of now, the nowness of Wilson. And what I'm interested in, really, in some ways, is the thenness of Wilson and how did the world make sense in these people's heads at the time. So that's some of the things that I'm playing with. Uh, uh, in the book that I hope will follow this uh, uh, from this one day, I hope to go beyond the question of whether the peace conference succeeded or it failed. And at some level, the answer to that question has been obvious for a long time. It failed because it <laughs> failed to prevent war. First in Asia, uh, beginning in 1931, and then in Europe, beginning in 1939. At issue here, I think, is more not did it create something good, bad, did it create something successful, unsuccessful, but what did it create? And, and why did it seem like a good idea or at least a plausible idea at the time? Okay? And, and how did that system help shape the historical development of sovereignty? Um, specifically, uh, uh, I want to begin the story of peacemaking in 1919 with structures of international relations as they existed at the time the Great War came to a close, and how the possibility of a dramatic transformation of those relations uh, came about very swiftly. Of course, by the fall of 1918, there existed a well-established practice for transitioning from war to peace. This was the armistice, a specific kind of legal, military, and political document. The Hague Peace Conferences of 1899 and 1907 specified that an armistice constitutes a suspension of military operations by the mutual agreement of the belligerents. This, by the way, comes from Ernst uh, Seytow, the, the distinguished uh, 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 British diplomat and Asianist, um, um, in fact. Um, okay. Uh, an armistice need not imply an equality of forces, uh, uh, but neither is it a surrender, something which Marshal Foch never entirely 
understood or, or didn't want to understand. But nor is it a temporary truce. It is a political as well as a military document. Most commonly, an armistice is sought when the outcome of a conflict is clear, but for various reasons, the powers uh, do not wish to fight to the finish. Commonly, an armistice is arranged by the military authorities and then approved by the political authorities as really the first act of making peace. The armistices that ended the Great War, that ended the fighting, or at least tried to end the fighting of the Great War, began with the more peripheral fronts and worked their way toward the Western Front. Uh, as such, they operated largely as the uh, Hague Conventions had envisaged. An armistice was signed with Bulgaria on September 29th with the Ottoman Empire on October 30th. So far, so conventional. They were made by the military authorities in the field, were approved by the political authorities, an inter-allied body known as the Supreme War Council. Paradoxically, and this is kind of really where the story begins, the German Kaiserreich on its deathbed opened up Pandora's box of the ideological content of the peace through the well-known appeal on the 6th of October, uh, not to the allies, not to the Supreme War Council, but to the person of the American president, Woodrow Wilson, for a peace on the basis of Wilsonian ideals. Most famously, the 14 points speech of Wilson of January 1918. Um, the crumbling Austro-Hungarian regime made a, a similar appeal the next day on October 7th. Um, the immediate motivations of the Germans in appealing to the person of the American president uh, seem very clear. They wanted to stave off complete military defeat, above all, an occupation of the German homeland. But the immediate, their immediate motivations, what they wanted out of this, I would argue, ceased to be the point. Rather, the point was that one side on the military conflict sought an ideological alliance <laughs> With the other side of uh, 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 on the other side of the military conflict, and that this odd alliance carried with it the prospect of a transformation of international relations according to the principles appealed to. Okay. Now, as this all unfolded, I mean, much of the reason that 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 uh, you know the Germans called for an armistice the sixth, and it wasn't signed until November 11th, really involved negotiations among the Allies because the Germans had accepted it, but the British and French are <laughs> going, huh? Uh, we're the ones with most of the muscle in 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 the field. Um, in the end, Britain and France would, would insist on exceptions concerning two of the specific 14 points. The British would, would uh, insist on deferring for future specification what exactly was meant by freedom of the seas. And likewise, the French uh, would insist on just what was on, on deferring precision uh, as to just what was meant by, quote unquote, restoring France and Belgium, which will, of course, become the question of reparations. But remarkably, beyond that, the strange bedfellows of President Wilson and the German high command won on the essential point, which was the acceptance of Wilsonianism as the ideological basis of the peace. The contractual character 
of what had been agreed to, I would argue, created something extraordinary in the history of international relations up to that time. Indeed, as Paul Binkley, an American uh, scholar, wrote as long ago as 1931, I quote him, the essential significance of the 14 points as a basis of peace was not their ethical quality, but their contractual character. Was not their ethical quality, but their contractual character. They had made a deal. The acceptance of Wilsonianism, one could argue, created a common form of agency, a way of acting on the world stage in which the intentionality of each national agent was bound up with the intention of the others. The peacemakers, whether they liked it or not, or whether they understood what they had in fact agreed to or not, formed in significant ways something greater than the sum of its parts. And, and I would suggest it was this act of creating a collectivity that helped in turn to create its own reality at the time of the Paris Peace Conference. Well, what in fact had the Allied and Associate Powers signed on to in signing on to Wilsonianism? Um, particularly for the younger people here, I think that Barack Obama, not necessarily Barack Obama today, but Barack Obama in 2008, um, um, helps us understand Woodrow Wilson in 1918 for good or, or for ill. Uh, and this, this brief time in which one could almost project anything onto him and which, uh, which one wanted to project and could be all kind of things to all people. At the time, and this is not, I think, controversial, Wilsonianism loomed as large as it did for a certain time because it gave the war a new moral compass, an explanation of what it had all been for, a millenarian interpretation of the war that had international resonance and, moreover, posited a new kind of world that would result, for, uh, result from it, not just how to end this war, but how to end any future war. And what had it all been about besides the realist games of 19th century power politics? And its only competitor, as Arnold Mayer uh, uh, argued back in the 1950s, uh, really was Bolshevism. And I think as, as Eris Manella has done a, a, an interesting job explaining, um, and I think I would agree with him, that really Bolshevism became center stage in the colonized or decolonizing world really kind of after Wilsonianism floundered. Uh, so this is time where, where ideological power really is more there with Wilsonianism, and, and Bolshevism is kind of what happens afterwards. Now, in, in signing on to Wilsonianism, and whether they appreciated what they had done or not, the Allied and Associate Powers had agreed in the abstract to a very different notion of sovereignty within nations as well as among nations. And, uh, um, and what I'm going to argue here is that the problem of Wilsonianism is not so much its incoherence as its radicalism. And I want to think about Wilsonianism as a radicalized version of 19th century liberalism and a certain logic carried to its conclusion. The, uh, uh, the notion being that the locus of sovereignty rested not with the nation, but with the individual, with a certain kind of individual. Okay? And I, I believe that nothing else 
makes it possible to make sense of the whole notion of self-determination, which I could talk about at some point, uh, uh, and how difference is handled within self-determination. Uh, nothing else makes sense of the functioning of the League of Nations as it was supposed to function, or the mandates. Uh, um, um. At the heart of Wilsonian concepts of sovereignty, I would argue, lay the political individual as, the, as 19th century liberalism had imagined him. Rational, morally autonomous, in a way self-sovereign, also male. I, I think there's not much question about that. It is this individual... Okay, rational, morally autonomous, self-sovereign that constitutes the proper self of self-determination. Okay, so these individuals, these building blocks of sovereignty at any level from the Vermont village to the international system itself, who are these people? These political individuals are people who can make covenants which is actually, you know, I've given a version of this talk in French, and the French translation is pacte or pacte d'alliance. It's not really the same thing, and I have to go into some sort of translation about, about, about really what, what the differences are. Covenants. Individualized and totalized promises to each other to form a semi-sacralized political community. The biblical Hebrews became a people through a covenant. The Puritans in colonial Massachusetts became a people through a covenant. According to this way of thinking, Americans became a people through covenants such as the Declaration of Independence, uh, the American Constitution. A covenant, in this sense, is, is more than a treaty. It's more than just another agreement. And I think it was not an accident that Wilson tried to mobilize this term. It's also not an accident that... Uh, that I mean, I'm not an expert on American diplomacy, but I think it's also not an accident that it's not a term commonly used either before Wilson or after Wilson. It's a historically specific uh, term. So these self-sovereign individuals would become the building blocks of all political society from the Vermont town to the system itself. Uh, and they would do so through covenants, the, the highest expression of which would be the covenant of the League of Nations. And it was, it was, I would argue, for precisely this reason, all of the treaties produced by the Paris Peace Conference, including the short-lived Treaty of Sèvres, when there was kind of good reason to think otherwise, uh, uh, began with the, the covenant of the League of Nations. World government, in quotation marks, would thus exist at the level of the individual through a global transnational community of self-sovereign individuals who would be presumed to want the same thing in the supreme matters of war and peace. All other bodies, notably nation states, would be accountable to this community. So there'd be a locus of sovereignty and a locus of accountability beyond uh, the states themselves. Now, politically significant difference would not disappear within this community any more than it had within the United States itself. Some forms of difference would be, in effect, recognized and largely banished from the public sphere. And in America, one thinks of what Americans call ethnic difference or religious difference. So Polish Americans, uh, Catholic Americans, Italian Americans have more or less identical civil rights. They're certainly mobilized as such at election time, but, but it's not a politically uh, a, a significant part of one's civic um, um, identity. 
except kind of for electoral purposes. Other forms of difference, notably race, would determine, on, on, according to this way of thinking, whether certain categories of people uh, would be eligible to make a covenant at all. Okay? Um, and in the United States, I mean, this was a time of, of greatly enhanced racial segregation uh, um, um, uh, within the federal government, and Wilsonians were just fine with um, uh, with racial difference, with a with a kind of politics of exclusion based on difference. And liberalism, I even I would argue, was not really ever about including everybody. It's about including everybody eligible for inclusion. Okay which is a more fast and loose concept. And internationally, in, the, in the, the mandate system, racial difference could determine whether a given people or a given set of inhabitants was ever uh, uh, eligible for self-determination. Okay. So underpinning all this was a, a notion that the American national community had worked out the problem of difference, that we understood difference, that we worked it out just fine, and that it was this that made the United States such an exemplar in the world. And what I, what I love about this as a Europeanist was, was kind of how seriously Wilsonians took themselves. And that they could say without irony and sincerely without fear of contradiction that America wanted a disinterested peace, it wanted an altruistic peace, it just wanted to remake the world in the image of the United States. And Wilsonians then as now don't really do irony, and that's, that's kind of a great, a great shame. You know? uh, um, um, uh, Wilson actually did have kind of a sense of humor, but not about himself. Um, uh, Wilsonianism also had no problem with power and exercising it. Wilson was, a, was one thing an academic and, and who had a sense of the coercive power of pedagogy um, and certainly was very comfortable with the idea that some people knew better than others uh, uh, which was right, uh, what was right. He also had no problem with state power, provided that that power was accountable to the true sovereign, which is the people, a very progressivist uh, uh, notion. The same held true for power among nations. The victory of the allied and associated powers, according to this way of thinking, had, had, was the result of a historic combination of military power and what constructivists would call discursive power, of might and right. Um, and uh, they had, in effect, made a covenant. They had agreed upon a common set of principles as the foundation of the new world order. And as such, they the, the, this collection of great powers that was agreed uh, uh, on a common notion of, of sovereignty in world affairs, not only appropriated, but merited, but deserved a predominant role in the making of the peace. Uh, um, um, and indeed merited making peace according to a definition of sovereignty coined a few years later by the kind of evil genius of sovereignty between the wars, Carl Schmitt. The capacity to decide upon the exception. That is, to decide what there was to decide as well as to decide it. To decide the questions as well as the answers. A kind of all-encompassing notion. But as such, the great powers would not operate as they had uh, before 1914. They would operate in accordance with the wills, the, the common wills of the liberal individuals they comprised, who made up a single global community to which all nation states would become accountable. The League then, the new League of Nations, would simply be an institutional expression of this new 
kind of sovereignty across the globe. Okay. If, if nations in general and great powers in particular remained accountable to the true global sovereign, to this, this transnational global community of liberal individuals, then you don't need to get rid of the nation state. You don't even need to get rid of the great powers. You simply need to orient their morals correctly. Okay. And then I, I keep thinking about this, this uh, Tokyo Puck image, perhaps as a metaphor for the conference. You, know, you have the crown, a, a conventional image of Western sovereignty. And then you have this other thing, this, this, this Wilsonian thing in the background, not controlling things, but not uh, uh, absent either. Okay. Um, so this Wilsonian way of imagining sovereignty, I think, was not just some scheme created by this, this ex-academic floating in the ether out there. It had practical consequences as the uh, 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 Paris Peace Conference got going. In common usage, which I again adapt from, from Seitao, a conference of great powers would make a preliminary peace, which would then be refined and affirmed by a congress of all interested parties, including the former enemies. And this suggested a sequential process, uh, uh, first ending the war, then designing the international, uh, redesigning the international system. The French, among others, put uh, out an idea for doing so uh, 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 fairly quickly in a memo circulated uh, 10 days after the armistice from André Tardieu of the French delegation. The problem was that it also suggested abandoning the 14 points as the basis of peace, as an abstract set of principles uh, ill-suited to what grown-up diplomats actually do. Um, this, however, was not what the French had signed off on, and, and the, the concept went nowhere. Well, if the Paris Peace Conference was not going to be 19th century business as usual, what was it? Well, interestingly, people didn't quite seem to know when the conference began. Strictly speaking, one could argue, the Paris Peace Conference began on the 12th of January, 1919, uh, at a meeting of the Supreme War Council held in the office of the French Foreign Minister, Stephen Pichon. Its first item of business was hearing a, a report from uh, the Allied Commander-in-Chief, Marshal Foch, about progress in carrying out the armistice with Germany. The minutes are, are really are kind of hilarious of this. The discussion then glided as to how various nations would be represented. But matters remained uncertain enough for President Wilson to ask rather plaintively at the end of the meeting, I quote, what was the conference to which the discussions on representation related? Well, matters obviously couldn't end there, and they talked about it for a few more days until they presented uh, a document called The Rules of the Preliminary Peace Conference at Paris uh, at its first plenary session on the 19th of January, on the 18th of January, 1919. The first documentary evidence, I would argue, of the peace conference as a particular structure of international relations. Uh, the document certainly made clear that all states were not created equal at the conference, nor would they be treated as such at the proceedings. It identified belligerent powers with general interest, which would be included in all discussions. Uh, these comprised the United States, the British Empire, France, Italy, and Japan. All other invitees would be consulted at the discretion of this inner circle of five. These ranged from Belgium to the British Dominions to China uh, to the newborn Czechoslovak Republic to uh, countries that had broken relations with Germany, such as Nicaragua. 
Early on, Hyopandia Caligaris, of the, the head of the Brazilian delegation, complained about the composition of the committee that would design the League of Nations. He said, he said before the plenary of the conference, it is with some surprise that I constantly hear it said, this has been decided, that has been decided. Who has taken a decision? We, that is the plenary, are a sovereign body, a sovereign court. It seems to me that the proper body to take a decision is the conference itself. Well, the response came from the French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, who, according to 19th century practice, was the president of the conference because the conference was taking place in Paris. On the one hand, he certainly left no doubt as to who was in charge. I quote, with your permission, I will remind you that it was we who decided that there should be a conference at Paris that it, that, and that the representatives of the countries interested should be summoned to attend it. I make no mystery of it. There is a conference of the great powers going on in the next room, unquote. He made no excuses for the authority of the great powers. He continued, we have had dead, we have had wounded in the millions, and if we had not kept before us the great question of the League of Nations, we might perhaps have been selfish enough to consult only each other. It was our right. But on the other hand, and I think interestingly, the great powers, as this sort of provisional world sovereign, acted in various ways that, that, that undercut their own hegemony. Um, and I think maybe the first example of this was turning to the League as the first order of business. Okay. Um, he, moreover, uh, one more quote from Clemenceau, the peacemakers as instruments of individual nation states were not their own master. Uh, um, he continued, now gentlemen, let me tell you that, that behind us is something very great, very august, and at times very imperious, something which is called public opinion. It will not ask us whether such and such a state was represented on such and such a commission. That interests nobody. It will ask us for results, ask us what we have done for the League of Nations. Now, you know, what Clemenceau actually meant by all this, your guess is as good as mine. I don't think we need to believe that he believed what he was saying. I think that what he said matters as, as, as well as what he meant. And whatever he believed, he felt compelled to explain himself in Wilsonian language, a language that recognized the sovereignty of a sort of global public opinion. And I think that's interesting. Now, Wilsonians still believe that Wilsonianism was undone by realism, in effect, as the conference uh, uh, succeeded. That base selfishness, base nationalism undid the idealism of the 14 points. I guess I'd like to think, though, that had realism actually been the predominant discourse, the conference might have been less complicated and might even have been less contentious. But the problem, in a way, was that something else had been created. Wilson and this Wilson thing was still lurking there in the background from the first days of the conference to the last. Okay? And paradoxically, I think this is clear from all, in all sorts of ways from the Treaty of Versailles itself. 
an enormous document of 440 articles, more than 200 printed pages, and I would recommend true lovers of history to read the Treaty of Versailles beginning to end uh, someday. I just want to talk briefly as my last main topic about uh, 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 one particular example of the Treaty of Versailles, the Covenant. Uh, not as it functioned, but as it was written. And I'm going to argue that the radical logic of Wilsonianism was alive and well in the covenant as it was written. Um, and that, that that was something supporters of the League and opponents of the League understood very well. That this was a real time bomb and something that would radically change uh, the way the world worked if it was actually carried out. The League would comprise two bodies, a council and an assembly, not unlike the United Nations. The membership of the council would comprise five great powers as permanent uh, members plus four other rotating members. There was no veto uh, 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 of the great powers, however as there is in, in the United Nations. These, uh, these other four members would be elected uh, uh, from the Assembly. Certainly the Council was the senior body on matters of, of war and peace. But the great powers that made up this, the, uh, this, this kind of center of the Council were not supposed to be what they had been in 1914. They were supposed to act according to a single will uh, as beacon and protector of the world. As Wilson himself put it, the significance of the result, therefore, has that deepest of meanings, the union of wills and a common purpose, a union of wills which cannot be resisted and which I dare say no nation will run the risk of attempting to resist. Okay? And I think it's only this, this kind of logic that makes workable Article 5 of the Covenant which called for unanimity in, in, in all decisions. It supposes, and I think can only function, if in fact there is this global community that can be presu presumed to want the same thing on the supreme matters of, of uh, war and peace. Okay? So that in this way, sovereignty within nations and sovereignty among nations are two sides of the same coin. Wilson put the matter quite frankly. We are depending primarily and chiefly upon one great force, and that is the moral force of public opinion in the world, the cleansing and clarifying and compelling influences of publicity, so that intrigues can no longer ha uh, um, have their coverts, so that designs that are sinister can at any time be drawn into the open, so that those things that are destroyed uh, by the light may be promptly uh, destroyed by the overwhelming light of the universal expression of the condemnation of the world. Indeed, Wilson went further and described the League as a kind of panopticon of world peace. And this is a really remarkable connection of Jeremy Bentham, you know, one of the, the, one of the founding fathers of, of what became liberalism. Um, on January uh, 25th, 1919, Wilson described the League before the plenary as, quote, the eye of the nation to keep watch upon the common interest, an eye that did not slumber, an eye that was everywhere watchful and attentive. You must think of Lord of the Rings or, 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 or Michel Foucault or something mm -hmm. like that. It's really not something you would think of uh, Wilson saying. 
Right. Um, and and it's, it's worth noting that Wilson wasn't the only one saying this sort of thing at the time. So cautious a figure as Lord Robert uh, Cecil of the British delegation uh, said that the success of the League would depend on those who really believe that, that the interest of one is the interest of all. Uh, Vittorio Orlando went still further. He spoke of, quote, a self-constraint, a spontaneous coercion, so that states will in the future be brought under the control of public opinion of the world, voluntarily to recognize the restraint imposed upon them for the sake of universal peace. The French delegate, Léon Bourgeois, who'd been an advocate of a league long before, uh, before the war, uh, in fact wanted a supranational military force to, uh, uh, to give the League you know, kind of material power as well. One could argue that this is really about Germany, that it's really a, a kind of reflection of the French obsession with Germany. On the other hand, once you set up an international, transnational entity, can you really control it? The French helped set up the Euro, not exactly controlling it nowadays. Okay. Um, there's also a whole uh, uh, um, another register in which I could explain this and through the mandates, but I'll leave that for some other occasion, and proceed right to a, uh, a few conclusions. The kind of so what question that any historian ought to be able to answer, what do we get out of this? What do we get by trying to open up the question of sovereignty at the Paris Peace Conference? As I'm sure many of you know, the historiography of peacemaking in, after the Great War has made great strides in, in recent years. Uh, I think of Mark Trachtenberg's work of some time ago on reparations and showing that reparations were a far more uh, um, um, uh, sophisticated and complicated enterprise than simply the Allies doing unto Germany. Uh, the League of Nations is undergoing a, a kind of subtle rehabilitation, not so much at the high level, but at the low level, through the work of people like Susan Peterson and Bruno Caban. Above all, historians, and I think of Zara Steiner, among others, have pointed out the treaties are not destiny. You cannot draw a line of causation to 1919 and renewed war in Asia in 1931 and Europe in 1939. But I, I, it still seems to me, though, that the historiography of peacemaking is, is, still has this balance sheet component. Did the good outweigh the bad? Uh, and the question I want to pursue, though, is really kind of distinct from this. It's almost more Ronkian, and Ronka is somebody I think of as I go about this. What did it do? How did it make sense to people at the time who were not stupid people, uh, uh, and, and indeed who were the, you know, the cream of their societies in many ways? How did the world make sense? And I'm also interested in, in uh, uh, trying to deepen the dialogue between IR, what is going on in IR today, and, and history. And certainly political scientists, IR people, can benefit uh, by knowing more about history. Uh, but I also believe that international history can benefit from a deeper engagement in IR. Uh, international history is still very influenced by realism uh, uh, and of international relations as a game not fundamentally changed since Thucydides. I don't think it's controversial anymore to argue that sovereignty has a history and it's, it's, it's in that history that, that this project you know, wants to associate itself. Okay? Sovereignty at the time wasn't just Wilson and it wasn't just successors struggling over a crown. It was both, 
and perhaps something else besides, which is why I keep uh, uh, returning to this image. And there I will stop at something between 40 and 45 minutes. So, so <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.